Hey, everybody. It is Monday, February 26th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast on this full week. Jill, I'm Mo Shwanunu. <laughs> and I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. And if you were listening on Friday, we were talking about four-day work weeks. But, uh, Jill, this is a five-day work week. And uh, depending on what the government does, there could be a shutdown this weekend. So it is set to be a busy week of news. Tell me something I don't know, Mosh. I will tell you something you don't know. Today is National Pistachio Day. So apparently the pistachio industry has made it National Pistachio Day. Uh, fun fact, 98% of our pistachios come from one state. Can you name it? Georgia. I see where you're going, but the correct answer is California. California oh. accounts for the vast majority of our pistachios in this country, um, as it does for a lot of uh, our nuts, fruit, and vegetables. Uh, California, while we know it for Hollywood, San Francisco, etc., is really the heart of uh, a lot of our uh, food industry in this country. And that includes one of my favorite nuts, pistachios. So if you said almond, I would have definitely known mm-hmm. California. And interestingly, mm-hmm. I would say pistachio. So like potato, potato. Oh, not pistachio. Yeah, no. Pistachio sounds so hoity-toity, Bosch. Look at you. We're going to run a poll on Instagram today, Joe, and see where people land on the tomato, tomato, pistachio, pistachio debate. <laughs> Speaking of California, by the way, that's where they call it apricot, not apricot. Moshe, Mosha. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even get me started on pronunciations of my name, Joe. There's more than two. Okay, let's get to some news here. Major delays and problems at pharmacies in the United States and at military bases around the world after a foreign country appears to have hacked a major health system here in the U.S. Another one. Trump wins his latest Republican primary in South Carolina this weekend. But Nikki Haley says she isn't going anywhere. We're going to break down what happens next and the latest in the Trump vice president's search. Meanwhile, Alabama Republicans scramble to change the law to allow IVF in the state again. And it comes as national Republicans, including Trump, are chiming in on the ruling. Overseas, the U.S. and allies launched the biggest attack yet on the Houthis in Yemen. But are they putting a dent in their capabilities? The latest on that tragedy in Georgia, as the man who killed a Georgia woman on a run appears to have entered the country illegally. Russian authorities give the family of opposition leader Alexei Navalny his remains back after holding them for a week after his death. The first U.S. moon landing since 1972 was a success, sort of. What it means that the lander is now on its side. Maybe it's just tired, Mosh. (laughs) We're told, Joe, (laughs) that the lander effectively tripped on itself is the way they explained it. We'll have more in the speed read. And Amy Schumer reveals a medical condition after her appearance recently has come under speculation. And Mosh has on this day in history... Jill will tell you about how Nike saw one of its first successes by using a waffle iron to create the bottom of its athletic sneakers in the 70s. Literally a waffle iron. No syrup, I assume. (laughs) You'll have to wait till the end of the podcast to find out. All right, let's get to our top story. Customers at pharmacies across the country and at U.S. military clinics around the world are continuing to experience long waits after a cyber attack against one of the country's largest prescription processors. Health industry experts said that a cyber attack last week against Change Healthcare, that is part of insurer United Health Group's Optum business, could have severe and lasting consequences should the outages last into this week. 
Change Healthcare was acquired by United Health back in 2022. Change Healthcare provides prescription processing services through a system called Optum, which supplies technology services for more than 67,000 pharmacies and care to about 129 million customers. Most that's a lot of numbers, but I think that the bottom line here is that there are these middlemen that operate when you need to get a prescription. Yeah, essentially, you don't think about it. You go see a doctor, the prescription gets to the pharmacy, uh, they get in touch with insurance, uh, but there's a whole back end to it and change healthcare controls a major part of that. And that's the system that got hacked. So United Health, which is again, the parent company here, they are suspecting that a foreign country was behind the attack. No details on which country. The hack meant that many pharmacies across the U.S. could not transmit insurance claims for their patients, forcing a lot of people to pay out of pocket for drugs. Pharmacies across the nation were reporting significant backlogs of prescriptions, which they are unable to process. Patients are urged to check with their pharmacies before heading there to pick up a prescription. Now, beyond pharmacies across the country, like CVS, Walgreens, as well as independent ones, we have also heard from a number of military families that were also impacted at bases across the world as well. TRICARE is the U.S. military's healthcare provider for active duty personnel. And they say that all military pharmacies, clinics, and hospitals around the world were also affected by change healthcare systems going offline. Yeah, and as we head into Monday here, no timing as of right now on when things will be back up and running normally. United Health says they immediately disconnected its systems following the attack, but it cannot estimate how long the disruption will last. Uh, We also heard from a couple big university health systems in Indiana and California that have also been disrupted here. Effectively, as we told you, this is the back-end system. So this also impacts a number of doctors trying to send in prescriptions. I heard from some pharmacists uh, who follow Mo News over the weekend who are back to faxing in orders, uh, faxing, uh, and making phone calls to insurers. It's taking a long time here. Uh, A couple of the big pharmacies have put out statements that include CVS, which says that it's continuing to fill prescriptions, but it is unable to process insurance claims in certain cases. So uh, it does mean that you will have to get reimbursement potentially for drugs here, but it does mean you'll have to pay out of pocket in a number of cases. And, you know, if you've ever looked at the price differential between uh, what it should cost and what insurance pays for, it can be a huge difference sometimes. So that is making this issue even worse for many folks. Notably, Jill, uh, a number of people were asking over the weekend uh, why the government allowed United Health to buy Change Healthcare. It you know effectively is this huge huge conglomerate over the system, and when that merger went through, that put even more of the system under one company. So when a company like this goes down, it has a major major impact across the country, and as you've noted, around the world. And it comes as we've seen a number of healthcare organizations that have been under sustained assault from hackers over the last couple of years. Last year, we saw a record number of hacks and attacks. Data on over 133 million people uh, was breached just last year, according to regulatory filings. And the reason is obvious, right? Cyber criminals are trying to target healthcare providers because of the sensitive personal and financial healthcare information they hold on patients and the way that these ransomware attacks work typically. And it's not clear whether this is a ransomware attack, is they hold that information hostage and in exchange want a form of payment. It's unclear, at least United Health has not informed anybody about whether this is a ransomware attack or whether this was just a straight up attack to take information. But nonetheless, uh, it does reinforce the vulnerabilities in the system when it comes to even these 
huge, huge healthcare companies that they have to do more to build defenses into their software. All right, switching gears, let's talk presidential politics. Donald Trump won South Carolina's Republican primary on Saturday, easily beating Nikki Haley in her home state. He took about 60% of the vote to Haley's 40%, with more than 750,000 people voting. Trump has now swept every contest that's counted for Republican delegates, previously winning Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Haley is facing growing pressure to leave the race, but says she isn't going anywhere, despite losing the state where she was elected governor. Trump was dominant across the state, even leading in Lexington County, which Haley represented in the state legislature. Haley took the stage after Trump was declared the winner and insisted that the results showed South Carolina's frustration with our country's direction. She says, quote, I have seen that same frustration nationwide, and she is emphasizing that Trump is basically running for reelection as an effective incumbent, but 40 percent of the vote is going for her, though notably she is only getting about 20 percent of Republicans in the GOP primary. Most of her support is coming from independents and Democrats. Her argument, though, is that if Republicans make her the nominee, she can compete with Biden in the middle and defeat him handily. However, it appears Republicans want to make Trump the nominee for the third straight election, believing that he can beat Biden and bring back his policies from his first term. So Trump is now beating her 110 delegates to 20 delegates for the nomination. 1,215, that is the magic number needed to have a majority at the Republican convention. Given where the polls are, it does appear that Trump could have the nomination locked within four weeks as a number of states are winner take all and closed primaries where only Republicans can vote. It isn't clear if there is a single state coming up where Haley can actually win. The next primary is tomorrow in Michigan. And while there are a number of moderates and independents in the state and Haley has hopes of pulling off a victory there, Michigan will also likely hand a majority of its delegates to Trump. And that is because regardless of the primary result Tuesday, the state Republican primary, which is dominated by Trump loyalists, will actually assign out delegates at an upcoming internal state convention. Yeah, it's sort of like this situation in Nevada where she ran in the primary, he ran in the caucus. The caucus is actually where the delegates handed out. Effectively, the Trump loyalists control most of the state parties across the country at this point. That's been a huge strategy uh, from his team now uh, going back a couple of years, learning the lessons of 2016. So tomorrow, Michigan, it's the final major race before the election calendar broadens dramatically on Super Tuesday. That's just March 5th. So that's coming up very soon. That's when more than a dozen states will hold elections with thousands of delegates at stake. And that's where Trump could essentially take a several hundred delegate lead and be well on the road to locking up this nomination. You're going to see states like Texas uh, and California vote on Super Tuesday. California, the biggest prize, 169 delegates, nearly 12% of all delegates he needs. It's a winner-take-all state. It's also a state, despite the reputation of California, where they only allow registered Republicans to vote. And right now he's beating her there by 40 to 50 points. And so essentially, it's unclear what her strategy to actually win the nomination is she does have a chance in American Samoa and D.C., which have a couple nominating contests coming up, but combined only have about a dozen delegates. So that's not going to do that much for her. So why is she staying in? Many of you ask. Well, number one, because she can, because it's not over yet. 
she doesn't have to leave the contest. And there is a rare scenario where a health issue could come up or given all of Trump's legal issues, one of those could come up. So she's sticking this out, hoping for essentially a miracle here for her race. And so that's reason one, because she can. Number two, she has the money. Her donors continue to give her money, Jill, uh, to run in the race. She's maintained that relationship. And so while she can, by the way, she outspent him in South Carolina. She outspent him in New Hampshire and lost in both states. That is uh, what she will do because she has the budget. That's also a relationship she wants to keep. Nikki Haley is only 52 years old. She wants to run for president again in the future. And so she's going to preserve that relationship with those donors. And she's also arguing that Trump is unelectable in a general election. So she feels it's her obligation to stay in the race as long as she can. And essentially, if he loses in November, she can tell the party, I told you so. I told you that, you know, he can only win the right and can't win the middle and can't win independence. And the final reason, publicity, uh, her media profile, maybe a future a book deal, future consulting deals, uh, a TV show, perhaps. And so as she stays in the race, stays uh, in front of everybody. It's good for Nikki Haley's uh, future politically and elsewhere. Jill, as we look ahead to Michigan, we'll have more on the podcast tomorrow. One other storyline we're going to be watching is on the Democratic side in Michigan tomorrow. Now, Joe Biden is facing minimal opposition. Uh, his nomination is not in doubt. But Michigan's a state we've been watching closely. We've talked about it on this podcast and on the Instagram feed and the newsletter. That's where voters can actually pick uncommitted instead of Biden. Michigan is a state where there's a, a very large Muslim and Arab American population. Many of them are very upset at Biden over his support for Israel. So there's been a huge campaign in the state to get people to vote uncommitted to register their uh, frustration with Joe Biden. So we're going to watch that number on uh, Tuesday, whether there's a, a large proportion, a double digit proportion of Democrats who vote uncommitted instead of Biden. You know, he's just coming off of a victory in South Carolina where he won 95% of the vote. So if uh, his numbers go down a bit in Michigan, that's a sign that he's going to be struggling there. And Michigan is a state, it's probably one of the seven or eight states in November that actually matter, that are competitive. Uh, and so Trump won in Michigan in 2016. Biden won in 2020 by about 150,000 votes. And so the Biden folks would start to worry if they see a huge uncommitted number on the Dem side on Tuesday. And Moshe, just going back to the Republicans for a second, another thing that we are tracking is the competition to be Trump's vice president. And we are getting a sense of who the hardcore party activists are looking for Trump to choose at the Conservative Political Action Conference or CPAC this weekend. So a straw poll was held and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and former candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, they tied at 15 percent of the poll and they were followed by former Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard. She came in at second at nine percent, followed by House Republican Conference Chair Elise Stefanik and then Senator Tim Scott at eight percent. Yeah, so it appears the party faithful, the hardcores who attend this conference are split here. But what they would like to see is uh, not surprising. Trump go with somebody who follows the MAGA philosophy. So Kristi Noem, Ramaswamy, very loyal, espouse Trump's ideology. And that's really going to be the debate within the Trump camp as they choose who's going to be his VP in the coming weeks and months. Does he go with a sort of hard right to double down on his views and really churn out hardcore Republicans? Does he go with someone more centrist? That's been the whole Nikki Haley debate. Despite what they're saying about each other publicly, she does have an appeal here. You can see that in the numbers from South Carolina and New Hampshire among moderates, independents, and some Democrats who are disenchanted with Biden. 
Does he strategically make that play despite the fact that they don't love each other and they don't agree on everything, but that could ensure victory for him and a win over the middle. So Trump will decide whether to double down, MAGA squared, or go centrist. Uh, And there's also an option for him to just go with someone who is a very sort of low key, someone who doesn't disagree with him, someone who is very loyal and someone who doesn't get in the way and doesn't try to be as loud as him. So that's where you see the Tim Scotts of the world come about. Uh, And he's been out there with Trump effectively trying out for the position over the past couple of weeks. The fact that he backed Trump in South Carolina when Nikki Haley literally appointed him as senator tells you everything you need to know. And it also comes, by the way, is the vast majority of South Carolina legislators and uh, the current governor all joined up with Trump in this campaign against Nikki Haley, part because of uh, some division within that state party, but also because they see the inevitability of Donald Trump as the next president. So you're even hearing from people who will say this behind closed doors. Listen, I don't love the guy. I'd prefer somebody else, but he's going to be the nominee. So uh, you're better off with Trump lining up early with him because if he's going to be the nominee, he's going to be the president, I'm going to have to deal with him and loyalty to him is super important. All right, we have a lot more news to get to, including the speed read, but I want to begin with our sponsor this week, Good Shop. You might have heard of Good Shop, that is Chop, C-H-O-P. They offer fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door. We've talked about them on this podcast before, vacuum-sealed, frozen at peak freshness, and this includes more than 70 high-quality cuts, 100% grass-fed ribeyes, prime filet mignon. They also do sustainable and wild-caught seafood, salmon, cod, scallops, shrimps, and more. We cooked the salmon here Sunday night. It was excellent. And when I say we, Jill, I mean Alex, my (laughs) wife, was an incredible cook. Uh, But the salmon was excellent. And unlike many other companies, Good Shop sources its meat and seafood exclusively from American farms and fisheries. And so it also lets you support local family farms and independent ranchers here in the U.S. And it doesn't cost a fortune. The calculation here, the average price of a meal via Good Shop, $3.74. They pride themselves on identifying meat that has no antibiotics, no added hormones, no artificial ingredients, and they do offer a 100% money-back guarantee if you don't love what you're getting from Good Shop. So go to goodshop.com, that is G-O-O-D, good, chop, C-H-O-P.com, slash monews120, and use the code monews120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. Again, the code is monews120 over at goodshop.com slash monews120 for $120 off. Okay, time now for the speed read from alabama.com. A bipartisan efforts underway in the Alabama House and Senate to draft clarifying legislation that would protect IVF treatments following a state Supreme Court's ruling, which essentially froze IVF in a number of facilities across the state last week. This is all in the fallout of that state Supreme Court decision regarding a lawsuit about the accidental destruction of embryos at a facility. In the ruling, they decided that frozen embryos, even before they are implanted in the womb, are humans. The state lawmakers' efforts come as medical experts and critics fear that the court's decision, which can put those who discard unwanted embryos at risk of being held liable for wrongful death, could have a profound effect on fertility treatment operations in the state. It appears legislators are looking to make clear that IVF is still allowed. The state will have to revise Alabama's Wrongful Death of a Minor Act, which allows parents to sue for punitive damages when their child dies. 
Already, at least three fertility clinics in Alabama have halted certain IVF treatment programs amid concerns that their medical personnel could be at legal risk. Yeah, so we've been tracking this story for more than a week now. The court's ruling, which was handed down by an eight to one majority, applies only to three couples who were suing the fertility clinic over the accidental destruction of their embryos. But the wording of that decision, along with a very fiery opinion by the chief justice of the state Supreme Court, has left many wondering about the wider implications for people seeking IVF treatment in the state. It raises a number of questions. What rights will people have over their embryos? Could disposing of unused embryos lead to criminal charges, uh, both on the part of the facility as well as on the part of the individuals? The issue is, Jill, not surprisingly, as we've been telling you about some legislation coming out of states recently, the law is pretty vague here and left open to interpretation. Now, the Alabama Attorney General, his name is Steve Marshall, he said on Friday he has no intention of using that recent case as a basis for prosecuting IVF families or providers. So that's what he's saying. The governor, by the way, Kay Ivey, a Republican who's also very pro-life, says she wants to promote a culture of life, says life begins at conception. But even she says the ruling here went too far and the vagueness needs to be addressed. Again, the perils here of state legislators who have no background in medicine passing various laws. And the state Supreme Court saying here, you left us no choice. This is what the law says. You guys over in the state legislature need to revise this law because clearly facilities here, families here are freaking out, moving their embryos outside the state. IVF is effectively frozen in the state. And what's interesting is in the first few days after this ruling, a lot of conservatives were pretty silent on this. They weren't quite sure whether to back up the court, not back up the court. There are some fringe groups that have been backing up the court that are actually anti-IVF. But you saw later in the week, Thursday into Friday, Republicans realize that IVF is a pretty popular thing in America. It has 85, 90% support in America. And uh, this decision was very much out of step with the vast majority of Americans, including a majority of Republicans. So you saw Friday, Senate Republicans, Donald Trump, all one by one by one come out saying, Alabama, fix the situation. We support IVF, especially since we're very pro-life as a party. And this allows people to have children. That said, at the same time, you have a lot of Democrats here who are already making this part of their election argument, saying this is a result of Trump and Republican judges, conservative court nominees. This is a natural progression from uh, the banning of abortion, from the overturning of Roe v. Wade to now uh, limitations on other rights that women have. So they've been hammering Republicans with this. So expect to hear a lot of this related to IVF over the course of the next eight months here as the election proceeds. Uh, but you did see, again, Republicans, the majority of Republicans, come out in the last few days saying, Alabama, this goes too far. Please fix this. This ain't good for November. From the Associated Press, U.S. and British forces launched dozens of strikes against Houthi militants in Yemen on Saturday night. It is the latest effort to stop what's become nearly daily attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea and nearby waterways. The strikes mark the largest military action against the Houthis in weeks. The new wave was meant to target infrastructure and weapons that the Houthis have used to carry out attacks. The military action came at the end of a week in which the Houthis carried out several brazen attacks, including one last Sunday that damaged a British-owned vessel that was carrying 41,000 tons of fertilizer. The attack caused an 18-mile oil slick and forced the crew to abandon the ship. 
The following day, last Monday, the Houthis struck the MVC Champion, a U.S.-owned vessel that was carrying grain to the Yemeni port of Aden. Yeah, and you have the Houthis here saying they're going to persist in these attacks as long as the war in Gaza, Israel's war with Hamas, continues. The Houthis see themselves as part of what they call the access of resistance. These are Iranian-supported terror groups across the region, Hezbollah, the groups in Iraq, uh, the Houthis, Hamas all uh, united in their fight against Israel and America. Though at the same time, the Houthis have been targeting ships regardless of origin here. And that's been a huge issue leading to a number of uh, major shippers still routing all of their ships around the Horn of Africa, increasing prices, increasing delays, also increasing frustration over in Egypt, where a lot of ships are not using the Suez Canal. And so that is majorly hurting the Egyptian economy in the region. As far as that war, uh, the Israel-Hamas war, it continues. Negotiations also continue for a hostage deal that continued over the weekend. The two sides, though, do remain pretty far apart right now. The Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu did a number of American media interviews over the weekend. He defended the Israeli response in Gaza, saying the U.S. would be, quote, doing a hell of a lot more if it faced a terror attack where 1,200 Americans were killed, several hundred Americans taken hostage, and a terror group was controlling a border region on the U.S. border. And that's been the argument you hear from a lot of Israeli officials uh, who push back on the criticism they get from a lot of countries saying if you had a terror group controlling the border, sending missiles over over, taking hostages, you would be doing the same thing that we are. Nonetheless, the Israelis facing a lot of international pressure right now. It comes as the death toll approaches 30,000 in Gaza. Now, that includes both combatants uh, on the Hamas side as well as civilians. And the humanitarian crisis continues in Gaza. Nearly 2 million people displaced right now, many of them in the southern city of Rafah, which is the next potential battlefield. Now, the Israelis saying that uh, Hamas has just a couple of weeks to turn over all the remaining hostages, about 130 plus hostages, before they invade. Rafa, where they believe the remaining Hamas leadership is currently in hiding. As far as those negotiations, the Israelis say that Hamas is on, quote, another planet when it comes to those negotiations in terms of what they're demanding. They want the freeing of terrorists in Israeli prison who've committed murder uh, before. The Israelis saying that that's a non-starter for them. They also want to ensure that Hamas remains, Hamas wants to ensure that Hamas remains in charge of Gaza after the war. The Israelis saying to that, uh, that's not happening. So two sides here remain far apart. The Qataris, the Egyptians, the Americans, all trying to get a deal done here. Uh, everyone wants to find at least a break in this war to help the Palestinian civilians, especially who are suffering and displaced right now in Gaza. Uh, one more thing, Jill, we should note before we go here, several of you messaged me about it late on Sunday. There was an incident in Washington on Sunday. A man set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. Officers with the Secret Service extinguished the fire outside the embassy. It happened around 1 p.m. Eastern time in northwest Washington. That man, the U.S. Air Force confirms, is an active-duty airman. Uh, he suffered life-threatening injuries, remains in critical condition as of late Sunday night. No embassy staff were injured. All were accounted for. Uh, it appears this man was trying to make a point, protesting the war in Gaza, and so lit himself on fire and actually live-streamed it on the platform Twitch to try to get publicity for the act. From Fox News, the suspect in the killing of a Georgia nursing student on the University of Georgia campus in Athens did not attend school at the campus and did not know the victim. Authorities said over the weekend, the killing of Lakin Hope Riley, a junior on the dean's list at Augusta University, appears to be a, quote, crime of opportunity by an individual who woke up with bad intentions. This is according to police 
Riley was found dead near a lake at the University of Georgia's campus Thursday after jogging in the area. An examination on Friday revealed she died from blunt force trauma. Campus police say they are recommending charges against Jose Antonio Ibarra of Athens, including felony murder, false imprisonment, kidnapping, among other charges. He is currently in the country illegally, originally from Venezuela, and currently being held in prison. Fox reports that he crossed the U.S. illegally through El Paso, Texas in September of 2022 and was released into the U.S. via parole. Yeah, this is the latest high-profile crime by a migrant who's here illegally, Jill. We should note Ibarra's brother was also charged federally over the weekend with possessing a fraudulent green card and also is in state custody. He was stopped because he matched the description as they were looking for his brother. He turned over what appeared to be a green card that turned out to be fraudulent. So uh, he's also from Venezuela, like his brother, is undocumented. He faces charges on the fraudulent document and faces up to 10 years in prison himself. So there are a lot of political implications here, especially in a swing state like Georgia, which was narrowly won by uh, Biden in 2020. This man, Ibarra, who killed a nursing student, uh, came in illegally during the Biden administration, and he's one of 7.3 million migrants who've crossed the border in just the last three years. That compares to 2 million that crossed the border during the four years Trump was president. Now, some of the 7.3 million have been deported. Some have been released, like this guy, into the U.S., It's unclear in terms of comprehensive numbers how many crimes are committed by migrants, but there have been a number of high-profile ones. There was a recent New York Times piece about this, including, you know, New York is one of those states where it's actually illegal to ask immigration status. So you can't get comprehensive numbers uh, on migrant crimes. But in New York, you had a 15-year-old illegal migrant uh, shoot at a uh, police officer in Times Square, hit a tourist. There was also a separate incident where a group of migrants beat up a couple police officers. There was another case where a Venezuelan Wayland has been running a a ring of criminals who have been riding across New York City on mopeds, snatching purses. So a number of crimes here that have gotten in the headlines. And so that'll feed into the immigration debate, a border debate that we see unfolding right now on the campaign trail. Uh, Back to Riley, though, for a second, her family put out a statement over the weekend describing her as a bright and dedicated student who's compassionate, generous and a shining light. Uh, She was just out for a run. She was a nursing student. Uh, The nursing school also put out an incredible statement about her. So did her sister. Uh, Her younger sister, Lauren, put out a statement on Instagram saying she was the best sister, Uh, my built-in best friend. I'm not sure how many do this. I cannot wait to give you the biggest hug someday. I will miss you and love you forever, Lakin. So just a a tragic situation, but it's woven in with the politics of all of this. It's a story we'll stay on top of. From NBC News, the body of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died unexpectedly in prison nine days ago, was handed to his mother on Saturday. It is unclear what will happen next to his body. Navalny's family and supporters have accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of having him killed. Navalny survived a poisoning attempt in 2020 and years of harsh treatment in prison, including long spells in solitary confinement. The Kremlin rejects any allegations that they killed the 47-year-old opposition leader. Navalny's team said his death certificate says he died of natural causes. In a video recorded before the release of the body, Navalny's widow, Yulia, accused Putin of torturing the corpse of a political opponent. Navalny's allies are urging supporters not to relax, and his spokeswoman says there was no certainty that Russian authorities would let relatives hold a funeral quote, the way the family wants and the way that Alexei deserves. 
Navalny's mother has said that her wish is for him to be flown to Moscow for a public farewell service that allows his supporters to attend. Uh, she wants to follow Russian tradition. She wants a burial to take place at a cemetery called the Trikarovsky Cemetery. It's where a number of prominent Russians, including opposition figures, have been laid to rest, though the family is saying that the Russian government is telling them to have a private funeral only with family members present uh, and not to have a big public service. So that's something we will watch for here. Navalny, as we've told you, was Putin's most formidable rival, one of the nation's most prominent political prisoners. They didn't turn over his body for more than a week. Uh, The family suspects that's because he was poisoned or they want to ensure that anything in his bloodstream was gone and they were able to cleanse it by the time they handed over the remains to the family. Late last week, Joe Biden here in the U.S. did meet with the widow, Yulia, along with his daughter, Dasha. Navalny's daughter, Dasha, is a student out at Stanford University right now. From Reuters, the Moonlander, dubbed Odysseus, is alive and well, but resting on its side after its white-knuckle touchdown Thursday as the first private spacecraft ever to reach the lunar surface and the first from the U.S. since 1972. Although the Odysseus made it to the surface intact on Thursday, analysis of data by flight engineers showed that the six-legged craft apparently tripped over its own feet as it neared the end of the final descent. Oops. I feel I feel like I so relate to this vessel. <laughs> Odysseus, we sent you all the way to the moon and at, just as you're landing, you trip. So this is all according to Intuitive Machines, the company that launched the lander. So the spacecraft's believed to have caught one of its landing feet on the uneven lunar surface and then tipped over, coming to rest sideways, propped up on a rock at one end. This is according to the company's CEO, Although the lander's sideways position is far from ideal, company officials say that all but one of its six NASA science and technology payloads were mounted on portions of the vehicle left exposed and receptive to communications. Yes, I can still get its business done for now. Also, the functionality of its solar energy panel on top of Odysseus is facing the wrong way. Uh, But then there's a second part of it that is in working order and it has some battery power. So again, it can sort of do its business on its side, but only for eight or nine days, which means it effectively dies at some point this weekend, Jill, because that's when the sun basically sets on the moon for a while and it gets really super, super, super cold. And they believe that that'll be the end of Odysseus. So this is a private craft, which is NASA's using these days because it doesn't have much of a budget. And it's trying to get some intel on effectively the south pole of the moon. That's where they believe is water ice. That's the really the focus now of all moon landings is down on the south pole of the moon because if you have water ice, H2O, you can create hydrogen energy. Uh, For fuel, you can create water, you can create oxygen. So that is uh, really the focus right now. And among the details we learned this weekend, by the way, is that there was a human error that led to the failure of its um, rangefinders, a portion of the craft. And there was this last second emergency fix by NASA that effectively saved the mission uh, from a total failure. So a lot of stress there in the final hours of NASA. They made some calculations. My only frame of reference, Jill, is sort of Apollo 13, where a bunch of them are doing a bunch of math, uh, and they figured this out. Uh, And so it'll be on the moon. It's got a few days of work to be done. And then the sun will set, it appears, on both the moon for a bit and Odysseus. Odysseus, just like us. (laughs) You get all the way to the moon and you can function for basically a week on your side and then it's over. But, you know, it's something. They're counting the landing, Jill. 
And finally, from the Washington Post, actor and comedian Amy Schumer said that she was diagnosed with Cushing's syndrome. It is a relatively rare hormonal disorder that can change a person's facial appearance and cause weight gain. Schumer's revelation came after she came under widespread scrutiny of her appearance recently, with people noting online that her face looked puffier during an interview on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon this month. The newsletter News Not Noise published an interview Friday in which the 42-year-old revealed the Cushing's diagnosis. In the interview, Schumer said that the clamor of public comments about changes in her facial appearance made her realize that something was wrong. Cushing syndrome is a condition caused by having too much of the hormone cortisol in the body for a long time. Yes, the symptoms of Cushing's include a rounded face, a fatty lump between the shoulders, uh, purple or pink stretch marks on the skin. It can also lead to high blood pressure, bone loss, type 2 diabetes. There's basically two ways you can get Cushing's. It can either develop naturally, that's a rare situation, but mostly it's triggered by a medication uh, called glucocorticoids. These are medicines that are used to treat many conditions, including inflammatory diseases uh, like arthritis, skin rashes, back or joint pain. Uh, That lifts the cortisol level and in some cases triggers Cushing's. It can be life-threatening if left untreated, but of course, Amy and others here uh, are getting treatment. It is curable with treatment in the majority of cases. The treatment entails bringing down those cortisol levels, cutting the meds that caused it. And we should note here, statistically, Cushing's affects three times as many women as men. So Amy Schumer here speaking out, she wants to uh, create more awareness for uh, Cushing syndrome. Mosh, I have mixed feelings on this. On the one hand, it's like, can people just mind their P's and Q's about especially what a woman looks like in their appearance? On the other hand, you know, this did cause her to realize there was an issue and at least she's getting some help. Yeah, Jill, it reminds me a few years ago, uh, Deborah Norville of Inside Edition, viewers wrote in saying something's going on with your throat. They had watched closely and they're like, something looks off on her throat. And she ended up going to see a doctor based on the viewer comment and discovered that uh, she had a cancerous thyroid nodule on her neck. So in some cases, viewers are, in the case of Amy Schumer and in the case of Deborah Norville here, uh, they're chiming in help them realize a medical condition that they were uh, facing. All right. Well, hopefully she is okay. All right. Now time for On This Day in History. We begin in 1815. Some of you might know. Napoleon was forced to abdicate as French emperor back in 1814, was exiled to the island of Elba. Well, on this day in 1815, he escaped. Gathering support en route, he retook power in Paris, ushering in the 100 days And then Waterloo happens, and he's exiled again. Though this time, they don't take any chances. They send him to the island of St. Helena. Now, definitely Google it just to show how remote it is. St. Helena today still has a handful of residents. It's this island between Africa and South America, way down there in the Atlantic. And that's where Napoleon would live out the rest of his days. On this day in 1919, here in America, President Woodrow Wilson officially designated the Grand Canyon as a national park. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt had begun that process a decade earlier. It officially becomes a national park on this day in 1919, on its way to becoming one of America's most popular tourist attractions. All right, here's a bit of the fun history we told you about at the top of the podcast. On this day in 1974, 50 years ago today, Nike received the patent for its waffle trainer running shoes. Now, the Nike co-founder, Bill Bowerman, invented these iconic soles in a waffle iron over breakfast in his kitchen. At the time, Nike was a very small sneaker company started out of Oregon. 
Bill Bowerman was the coach of the Oregon track team at the university there, Phil Knight, one of his runners. They were unsatisfied with running footwear at the time, so decided to start their own brand. A breakthrough happens at the Bowerman family breakfast table. They were trying to figure out a way to create track shoes, running shoes, that would grip the track without spikes. So one morning over breakfast, Bowerman uh, takes his wife's waffle iron and is inspired to create shoes in that way. He ruins the waffle iron, we should say, but the shoe worked. Uh, you might have seen the movie Air last year. That showed you when Nike really takes off in the 80s. So it became a running shoe company in the 70s to some success and then blows up with the signing of Michael Jordan uh, in the, the 80s. And so it's a bit of that story that was told in the, in the film last year with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Though, Jill, I should note, they did not mention the waffle story. <laughs> I don't is, recall. Uh, the- <laughs> yeah, but I don't recall hearing about the waffle. No, it was cut from the movie, clearly. I'm told, though, that the original waffle iron is uh, at Nike headquarters in Oregon. If you can get to Nike headquarters, they have a museum there of the history, and it includes said waffle iron. All right. And on this day in 1993, the first terrorist attack against the World Trade Center took place. This is when a van bomb detonated under the North Tower. The goal with the nearly 1,400-pound device was to send the North Tower to crash into the South Tower, taking down both skyscrapers. The plan failed. Well, the explosion did take place, uh, killing six people, injuring a 1,000. Both skyscrapers would continue to stand. Uh, A number of, of Islamic extremists involved in that terrorist attack were convicted, and several had spent time in al-Qaeda camps. Uh, Eight years later, of course, al-Qaeda would try again uh, to bring down the Twin Towers on 9-11, this time with planes. All right, and we end here with music history, as we typically do. On this day in 1970, 54 years ago today, the Beatles released their album, Hey Jude. It would be their second-to-last album. Another iconic uh, moment in music history on this day 41 years ago. February 26, 1983, Michael Jackson's Thriller reached number one on the Billboard charts. And finally, don't call it a comeback. He's been here for years. (laughs) 33 years ago today, LL Cool J released his song, Mama Said Knock You Out. Don't call it a comeback. Ladies love Cool James. That is what LL Cool J stands for. I have to say, as somebody who had a couple of those hits in the 90s through something like a phenomenon, he's done an incredible job of staying culturally relevant and hosting shows, etc. for several decades now. One of my favorite movies is The Last Holiday with Queen Latifah and LL Cool J. I don't know if you've seen it. It came out in 2006. I I have not. No. It's a feel good. Highly recommend. I'll I'll put it on my uh, when I'm watching list, Joe. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Thanks for sticking with us, folks. It'll be a, a interesting last week of February here. By the end of the week, we'll be in March. And hopefully the government won't be shut down. We'll tell you more about that tomorrow. But I like to avoid those stories until we actually have certainty <laughs> on that. Let's see what the week brings to All right, everybody. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.